We're in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 as we conclude our sermon series titled Vital Signs. I'm going to begin reading at verse 25. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. We're um, finishing our time in 1 Thessalonians, vital signs. Remember, it was introduced and then repeated throughout the book. We should be examining ourselves. Really, it's a tool with which we can examine all spiritualities. Uh, What do I trust? How do I love? What is my hope? And as we come to the conclusion now of 1 Thessalonians, I want to ask a simple question. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to meet together for church? I mean, it costs time to come here. It costs gas. You could be home in your jammies having coffee right now. And then during this whole COVID epidemic, uh, there's all kinds of other questions and uncertainties that are hitting us when it comes to the question of actually gathering together as church. In fact, honestly, even in our own body, there's tensions, isn't there, as people have different views of what is wise and good for us to do. So is it worth it? The early church began to meet on Sunday mornings as a celebration of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, which took place on Sunday morning. It was not a holiday. Uh, it actually didn't become a holiday till something like 321 A.D. Just imagine what they had to do. They had to get up at the crack of dawn. They'd get together. They'd sing. I don't know how they warm up their voices at that time. They'd sing hymns of praise to the Lord. They'd hear the preached word. And then they'd go off to work. I wonder if they wondered, wonder if they thought, is it worth it? But all through... God's people in the Old Testament, but Christians in particular, have always met together. Why? Because God does his work among us when we gather. He uses his people when we gather together to nourish us, spirit, body, and mind. And so I'd like to look at this text to show you how this is in the background of this text. And I'm going to look at it with three words, pray Kiss and listen. Easy words. So, verse 25 says, Brethren, brothers and sisters, pray for us. It's a spiritual gathering. There's something spiritual happening when we come together as a church. Praying for one another really means we know one another. We know the needs that our brothers and sisters have. It also means we know what God is doing in one another's life. It means we love one another. We really care for God's blessings to flourish in one another's lives. And so this example of praying really means that we are close to each other. Here it's a term of intimacy. Brethren in our translation or brothers and sisters. Paul uses this term very often. In this text it's used some 16 times. It's a term of intimacy. It refers to the family of God. And then there's this special tenderness in the closing. You notice that here he uses it three times, this term of endearment and fellowship. 
and intimacy. I think you would do the same thing if you were writing a letter to someone that was very dear to you. Don't you tend to just express your love, not just in words, but in just the use of their, word, of their name. You might use endearments, you know, dear one, honey, loved one. Or you might use the name of that person. There's something about bringing the name and putting it on paper that brings it to mind how precious they are to you. I was reading this letter, uh, the last letter written by a Major Bellew in the Civil War. Uh, he wrote to his wife. He didn't know at the time he wrote it that it would be his last letter. He calls her name often over and over. He calls her my dear, my dearest. And then he has this line. If I do not return, my dear Sarah, never forget how much I love you. Nor that when my last breath escapes me on the battlefield, it will whisper your name. Something about remembering who people are. And what Paul remembers, and he remembers very fondly in these closing verses, is that they're my brothers and my sisters, or family. That's what he's emphasizing here. Over and over, it's the intimacy of Christians in the church family. More important than anything else, this is the eternal bond that we have in Christ Jesus. So he says, pray for us. Now, it's true that he prayed for them. Uh, there's some texts here that give you examples that we've already covered in the past months of how he prayed for them. But now he says, pray for us. What do you think? Is it just false modesty? You know, I know that I'm a great apostle and of course you want me to pray for you because you know that uh, your life will be blessed then. But oh, you want to pray for me? Sure, why not? What, hurt, what harm can it do? You think that's what he's doing? Well, you might think that, but that's not at all the case. Paul, in fact, asks for prayer often in the letters he writes to the churches. And he gives specifics. For example, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he says, Pray for me that the word would be spread. In uh, Romans 15 verse 30, he says, Pray that I would be rescued from my opponents. He needs their prayers, you see. In Colossians chapter 4 verse 3, he prays for opportunities to speak. In Ephesians 6 19, Please pray for me that I would have boldness when I speak the word of God. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, he says, pray for deliverance from prison for me. See, he depends on the prayers of God's people. He needs those prayers. Of course, the question is, do you feel that way? Do you think you need the prayers of these brothers and sisters in the sanctuary that are gathered together? I think many times if someone comes up to you and says, how can I pray for you? Often we say, ah, I'm good. I'm doing fine. Now, it might be because the issue, the burden on our heart is private and it's just not the right time to speak about it. That's understandable. But so often because we really do feel like we're good. We really don't need anything else. We're doing fine without prayer. But the apostle longed for the prayers of other believers, and so should we. Someone would say, why? What difference does it make? Well, in a way that is maybe mysterious to us, certainly to me, how the prayers of God's people are used by an omniscient, all-good, omnipotent God to affect His will. There's mystery in there for me, I admit. But in some way, we're commanded to pray 
And our prayers for brothers and sisters are the way, the instrument that God uses to bless them. That's how he's ordained to do his work. You know that we are spiritually dependent on one another. God has made it that way. He could have done everything for us, you might say, sort of directly. But no, he uses the body. We've talked much about the gifts of the Spirit, right? 1 Corinthians 12 and elsewhere where it says we're one body. You know, the kidney needs the heart. They need the eye. They need the legs. The whole body has to work together. We are dependent on each other. But even in this epistle, there's many examples of how we are dependent on one another. At least three times, Paul tells the Thessalonians to love one another. In, in one place, he says, I know how you love each other. He says, but excel still more. We depend on each other. In some way, God ministers his love to us through brothers and sisters. In the fourth chapter, he says that... <clears throat> Go to those who are grieving because they've lost loved ones and comfort them. The comfort of God comes through his people. In chapter 5, verse 14, he said, encourage and admonish one another. God's truth comes to us. God's challenge comes to us. God's encouragement comes to us through the people of God. And then there's the one that we think is sort of an accessory. Sort of an extra. We don't really need to do this. And that's pray for one another. Here's a sterling example of that. But the truth is that people languish spiritually when they're not ministered to by God's people. That's why people who are isolated so often are filled with doubt and confusion. So often find themselves getting weaker. Because God has ordained that through his body... He would comfort and encourage and build up his people. So it's a family obligation, really, to care for each other. You know, in a family, everyone has their chores to do, right? I hope that's true in your family. Even children should have chores to do. We're not helping them by saying, I'll just do it. You go watch TV or finish your homework. It's teaching them that this is part of what it means to be a family, is that everybody has some contribution to make. And it's true in the church family also, in the Christian family. And one of those chores that is often neglected is praying for one another. So in James chapter 5, verse 16, for example, it says, pray for one another that you may be healed. Imagine this. Just imagine what that means. That there, there may be brothers and sisters who are, well, ineffective, unfruitful in their life because we aren't praying for them. Brothers and sisters who might maybe are prone to temptation because we're not praying for them. There's brothers and sisters who are weak in body or mind or soul because we're not praying for them. Pray for one another. That's why, friends, it's worth it to gather together. Is it worth it? It's worth it because our spiritual life is nurtured by our brothers and sisters. We need that. Let's go on to the next word, which is a very lovely word. It's the word kiss. The verse says, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Now, whatever else it means, whatever else you think it means, it means that they were gathered together physically, right? This was not sending heart emojis to one another, right? They were actually together. Our bodies matter. We talked about that uh, Last time when we talked about how God wants to sanctify us entirely. 
Our bodies matter to God, and it matters when we gather physically. This command, by the way, this admonition is repeated in in several of the letters of Paul. It's it's in the letter of Peter also. So what does it really mean? Greet one another with a holy kiss. I mean, there might be some young man here who's got his eye on some young woman. He's thinking, you know, I really like this command. But you have to notice what it's saying. It's addressed to brethren or brothers and sisters. It, it means the whole church. It means men and women. It means old and young. It means all of us who are part of the Christian family. It's a kiss of greeting, but involved intimacy. It involved touching. It involved being together physically. It's the kind of greeting family members would give to one another if they gathered, let's say, for a Thanksgiving meal. I like to think of it as a gospel kiss. Just as the gospel demolished all racial and social boundaries, in the same way, this kiss celebrates that all of us are one in the Lord Jesus Christ. That none of those boundaries matter anymore. So, in that culture, for example, in the first century, this would have been unusual. For example, slaves could kiss their masters, but as historians tell us, maybe on their legs, likely on their feet. Someone of a lower status would never imagine kissing someone else of a higher status on their cheeks, for example. There was a distinction. In the early church, on the other hand, here was people gathered together. There were slaves, there was masters, and there was freed slaves. They were all there gathered together and It says here they were to kiss each other, not on the feet, not on the legs, but as brothers and sisters. One family. All those social distinctions were wiped out in Christ Jesus. And the same thing is true with racial distinctions. In this church were barbarians and Jews and Gentiles of every stripe. And it used to be, you remember, that for some of them, for some of these Jews, for example, to even touch a Gentile meant that you were ritually defiled. You couldn't any longer appear in worship. But now, they're kissing each other. Racial distinctions are wiped out. It's a wonderful command. I think of it as a physical celebration of the victory of the gospel. Social status is wiped out in Christ. Racial distinctions, distinction of ethnicity and gender are wiped out because we're one in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're one family. And and gathering together, greeting one another with a holy kiss, celebrating the fact that God has made us one family is really honoring the gospel and all that it's accomplished for us. So this kind of greeting shows that we're a family. Now, let's admit it that it probably varies from culture to culture. In France or in Italy or in the Middle East, a kiss may be the proper way to uh, greet one another. In other places, maybe in the eastern countries, it might be a a low bow. That might be the way. With a smile, that might be the way to greet others. In other cultures, it might be a handshake. I I love the Phillips translation of these verses. Uh, Phillips was an Englishman, and you would expect, and he delivers the kind of reserve that uh, should come from a Britisher, right? So he translates this. Give one another a handshake all around. 
That's good. At least he could have put the word hearty in there, a hearty handshake all around. And yet, he did capture the idea that there's some kind of physical touch. They're, they're together. They're gathered together because that's important. So just like a handshake, a kiss could be empty and perfunctory, commonplace without intimacy, without joy of meeting someone who's a member of your family, someone you love. It's possible, but that's not what Paul is talking about. He's talking about family love. There were and there always have been practical, even political concerns about greeting one another with a holy kiss. Uh, it was very interesting that early in the first century, the emperor Tiberius had to deal with a pandemic of herpes. Imagine that. So you know what he did? He banned kissing in his empire. We, we, we worry about mask mandates. This is a kissing mandate, you know. I don't know how people reacted to that. And sometimes it got out of hand in church. You can see it went back and forth as you read about it through church history. Actually, just like communion, right? Communion is a physical celebration of the spiritual reality of the, of the death of Christ for us. And we celebrate it with thanksgiving. And yet, sometimes people abused it. Like in Corinth, where it says people would drink lots of wine and get drunk at communion. Imagine that. You know, we should be really proud of ourselves. I don't think that's ever happened here. Of course, it's hard with grape juice, but you know. And so sometimes this kissing was uh, abused. A church father in the second century, Clement, seems to have been really irritated by this. You know, he says, some do nothing but fill the churches with the noise of kissing. Just smacking sounds all over the place. Enough already. Probably a slide would appear, you know. Please stop kissing and take your seats. Service is about to begin. So we end up really where we started. You remember a few months ago where Paul said in chapter 3, verse 10, chapter 2, verse 17, that he longed to see the Thessalonians face to face. Letters are good. Messengers are good that are going back and forth between us all, but I long to see you face to face. Something about physical communion. We are to gather to see each other, to touch each other, to be with each other. And in fact, in us, brothers and sisters, there's a spiritual instinct to gather. A Holy Spirit-inspired instinct to gather together. Wherever we go, whenever we travel, we want to be with God's people. And we do it even when it's risky. You know, in the first century, they risked everything. They, as you know, would meet in caves and caverns. Is it worth it? Yes, we're driven to be together. Reading about Soviet Russia, where Christians would gather together for worship deep in the woods. And they would have to go there a few at a time, one or two at a time, because they didn't want to attract attention. They had to go with, by different paths. Why? Why risk it? Because the Spirit of God draws God's people together. It's a spiritual instinct. In India, I spoke at a church that uh, met in an apartment because they couldn't afford to build or rent a place. And they would gather together, but they had to sing quietly because the neighbors would complain and call the police. Why? Just listen to worship music in the car, you know, be done with it. No, we're driven to worship together. Some of you have maybe heard of Richard Wormbrand. He wrote that book, Tortured for Christ. He was a pastor in the underground church in communist Romania. And he was 
pastor in the underground church, and he was raising, it raises the question, why? Why do we even bother to meet? Why have an underground church? In fact, he says that his tapes were recorded on cassettes. Why not just hand these out? But he writes, interestingly, about a young woman who was also a member of the underground church, but she was very outspoken. So during the week, she would take out portions of the New Testament gospel tracts and hand them out to people. So it was very public, and the police took notice of this. And they decided to arrest her, but they wanted to do it in a way that would maximize the effect, that would make it a lesson for everyone else that was watching. So they waited for her wedding day. And there she was, resplendent, beautiful as every bride is, about to be married to her groom who was standing next to her, and suddenly the doors burst open, and the police rushed in. And Wormbrand says that she handed her wrists to the police to be handcuffed, and as she was being led away, she said, I thank the Lord that I am worthy to suffer for him like this. And everybody was weeping because they knew what would happen to a young woman who was jailed like this by the Romanian authorities. And she was held for five years, tortured for five years. And Wormbrand says that when she came out, she looked 30 years older. The groom was still waiting for her and they got married, but it raises the question, is it worth it? Why not worship alone? Why not just me and Jesus in the woods? You know, Why not just me, Jesus, and the worship songs in my car? Many feel that way. But friends, for 2,000 years, Christians have gathered physically. They've worshipped together to celebrate the fact that the Holy Spirit has made them one family, even when it was risky, even when it was costly. Because the Holy Spirit pulls us together. So yes, we should pray, we should kiss, and lastly, we should listen. The People of God gathered to listen to God's word. I, it's translated variously, but you, you notice how strong the opening of verse 27 is. The New American Standard says, I adjure you by the Lord, or I charge you by the Lord. I, I want to administer this as an oath to you. It's, it's a strong word. He wants us to pay attention to what he's about to say. In fact, you notice that the pronouns change in verse 25, it's pray for us, it's plural, but now it becomes singular. I charge you in the Lord. In fact, there's a good possibility that these last verses were written in Paul's own hand. He's, he's adding his signature to this letter so everybody knows that it's his. This is what he did at the end of 2 Thessalonians, for example. I want you to know that this is me writing this letter, and here I've signed it. And here's what I want you to say. I want everyone to listen to the word of God. That's the closing command. That was the habit, the practice in all the early churches. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, when churches were being organized, the command was given to young Pastor Timothy to, to read the word of God and to preach the word of God. That's what he was to do. That's what happened when the church gathered. And these letters of Paul and the other apostles were read in the church, in the gathered community of the church. They weren't published. You didn't get them on Amazon.com. You came to church and there they were read. In fact, if you look at the end of Colossians chapter 4 verse 16, it says very clearly what was happening, that the letters were read and then passed on to other churches. 
Maybe some of them were copied, some maybe were copied later, but could be that someone who missed church, people would be saying, oh, we got a letter from Paul last week. Really? What did it say? Ah, I can summarize it. I don't have it because it's already gone on to Granby Church, you know. It was in the church that people heard the Word of God. In fact, they gathered to hear the Word of God. Now, I know that it's not possible for everybody to be physically together. I'm so glad that God has provided other means for us to at least be of one mind in this. For some, it's, it's illness that keeps them away, and we're praying for you. We're praying for you if you're ill and unable to be with us. We know in th this day and age, there's people whose bodies, whose immune systems make it very difficult for them to join us and be with us. And, you know, we miss you. Uh, if you're watching, we're so glad you're watching. We miss you, hope, and wait for you to come and be with us. There, there's others I know who care for loved ones. They would long to be with us, but it's an act of love for them, sacrifice for them to not come because they have to care for those who need them. Of course, for some, distance is a factor. For others, they have no transport. There's all kinds of practical reason. But here's what I'm saying. To be together is a Holy Spirit drive inside of us. Because in the gathered church, God nurtures us spirit, soul, and body. And here we're talking about how he nurtures us mind and soul through the word of God. God ministers to us in a special way when we are gathered as his church. Sometimes it's God's word through other believers. You know, Colossians 3 verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another. And so it happens that brothers and sisters will encourage you, will lift up your spirits because of that. Some years ago, while we were waiting to build on this land, so there was nothing here, we had the land and it was just empty. It was just lying there and there was obstacles and obstacles and we were waiting and waiting. Is this really what God wants us to do? And we had a, a week-long time of prayer as a church and we gathered, we had a meeting where people shared what they had learned as they waited upon God. And one of the sisters quoted Exodus chapter 23, verses 29 and 30. Exodus 23. There, God tells Israel, yep, I'm going to give you the promised land. It's yours. But I'm going to give it to you little by little. It's an interesting verse. Why? He says, because if I give you the whole thing, it's too much for you to handle. It'll turn into wilderness. Wild animals will overcome. And overtake that land. So I'm going to give it to you little by little. As much as you can handle each step. And so we were encouraged. We knew what God was saying to us in that. That yeah it's okay. I'm leading you. I'm still guiding you. But it'll come at the right time. Little by little. Whatever you're able to do. I'll enable you to do at that time. God speaks to us through brothers and sisters. I think the strangest Example of that was when we were just a small church just starting out uh, down the road. And uh, there was an, a time when God's word spoke to a man in a church service through the words of that same man. Jim was a, just a wonderful gentleman. He was an older man, actually. And now he had started coming to church. He, he was in church every week, but struggling, struggling. I don't know if I can believe this. He was thoughtful, a good reader. He read the Bible, he read the Gospels over and over. I just don't know if I can believe it. And then one day he came to me and said, I, I want to be baptized. Jim, what happened? What do you mean you want to be baptized? He says, well, actually it happened at Easter. Not my sermon, no. He says, we were there 
Everybody was gathered for worship. We were singing the praises of God. And then you had asked me, Jim says, to get up and read the text for the day, which was the account of the resurrection. So I got up there and read what I've read many times alone, many times pondered. And as I read it, something happened. I realized, you know what? I believe this. I believe that Christ really died for my sins. I really believe that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day. Something happens. I don't know exactly how or why God works this way, but he works through his people when we're gathered together. And in the church, God has also appointed teachers and preachers to feed our souls. Remember, we talked about this just a week or two ago in verses 20 and 21 of this chapter. It's God's appointed way of teaching us. Paul wrote about it when he was organizing the church through young pastor Timothy. In 1 Timothy 5.17, he says, there, there are some who are going to be working. This is going to be their task to preach and teach the word of God. And so when we gather together, God speaks to us as a body. And I wonder if that's ever happened to you. Yeah, it might be a text you've read many times, but when we're gathered together, the Spirit of God impresses this on your heart and in your life. I was thinking of some of the times this has happened to me, and I, I have to say this many times, but uh, just to pick a couple examples, I remember a sermon on marriage. And I don't remember the whole thing. I, I know it's based on a text and talking about how God creates something new when we're married. He makes out of the two one flesh, and then the preacher said, here's two things. You can allow this new creature to be murdered. Your marriage can be destroyed through external forces. You can allow it to be murdered, so protect it. And then he said, you can also commit suicide. You can allow this marriage to be destroyed by things that are inside the marriage. Don't allow that to happen. Nurture what God has given to you. I, I can't forget that. I've read those texts many times, but God applied it to my heart. I've read James chapter 1, verse 20, many times. I had read it many times. The anger of a person, the anger of a man, doesn't accomplish the righteous purposes of God. thought I understood it, but I was in a church service, and the preacher was preaching from that text, and it just hit me right between the eyes. Finally, God addressed it to my life and my habits and my words. The anger of man does not accomplish the righteous purposes of God. Something happens, friends. God has gathered us together in church and God's word comes to us through those whom he has ordained to preach that word to us. We're a family, brothers and sisters. And so there's this very warm ending to 1 Thessalonians, isn't it? Brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters. We have to keep that in mind as we look at each other. We're a family. So, you know what? Stay a while after church. Get to know each other. Have some coffee. It's a nice day. Walk around outside and talk to somebody. Join a small group or, or join a ministry where you can work side by side with somebody. Get to know one another as brothers and sisters. Get to realize that you're part of a family that the Holy Spirit has created. And so pray for one another. Greet one another as brothers and sisters and encourage one another through the word of God. It's God's means of nurturing all of us, heart, body, and soul. Amen. Oh, Lord, we thank you for this letter. For your, yes, for your whole scriptures, but for this First Thessalonians and how it's spoken to us and challenged us and encouraged us, reminded us of who we are in you and all that you've done for us. Now we pray, Lord, that you would change our outlook 
build our outlook, how we see one another. Let it be honoring to you, Lord, and let it be an encouragement to those that you call us to love and build up. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We've been talking about being brothers and sisters, about the Spirit of God drawing us together. Usually I close with a word of benediction. I wonder if we could say the benediction to each other today. I don't know. I usually raise my hand in a word of blessing. If you're comfortable, do that. If not, at least let your heart be tuned to one another and let's read this blessing together. Brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen.